what have you all been up to? Nothing here. Just planning on moving. How's that going? It's a slip. I signed up for uh, an Amazon seller account. I'm just going to try to send them all my junk I don't want. Really? Mm-hmm. You got work? anything to sell? What are you selling that you think I might be interested in? Books and movies and I have board games I never even opened. Can you send, you can send Amazon one of something? Yep. Wow. You can sell something and sign up uh, and say that it's fulfilled by Amazon and then they send it whenever it sells. Interesting. Yes, it seems like a lot easier than eBay. And you could actually just put everything in the same box and ship it off to them. Wow. So you can treat Amazon like a storage box in a way. Yeah, I think you could even send it back to yourself after you move. <laughs> You're like, here's my junk. It's $10 million. And then and then a year later, be like, oh, I want that back, by the way. Yeah. Do you have to pay them to, like, warehouse it? I'm not sure. So I uh, I tried to buy an Atreus keyboard, uh, like, about a month ago now. And I filled out the form and never heard back. So then I was looking on their forums, and I saw somebody selling one that they already had uh, assembled and it's used. And it has the uh, the clear, quiet keys. Uh, and he lives in New York, and I emailed him, and he agreed to sell it to me. So I'm getting an Atreus keyboard. I'm pretty excited. How much did it cost? Yeah, two hundred dollars. It's usually three hundred assembled, or one fifty parts only. Good deal. Oh, are those the split ones? No, no. It's it's uh it's one piece, but they're the each half is on an angle. Uh, it's about the same. It's supposed to be a travel ergonomic keyboard, so uh, it's the same size as like a laptop keyboard, but it's your hands are more comfortable. And it has the modifier keys to do layers and things. Programmable. So I don't know much about the keyboard besides what you guys have talked about, but isn't the whole point of it, one of the points is for it to be split so you can adjust where your hands go and stuff? Like, why are they selling non-split ones? Just for travel cases, or...? I mean, I would prefer a non-split one just because I don't really... I'm more concerned about the angle of my hands and, like, also the... uh, the layers more so than like having my arms split apart. Okay. And like uh, the keyboard that Pam has, it's it's one piece, right? Yes, yeah, one solid. But it's still spread out, though, right? Like your keys. Yeah, it's two wide. Keys. It's pretty wide. But you wouldn't want to put that in a backpack and carry around with you. No, it's too big for that. It's also like it's too. Hold on. Depth? Yes, depth is. It's pretty big. Pretty thick. So I I don't. Actually, I am looking for like a travel ergo. Like, a friend of mine got a folding one, and but oh. it felt too close together. Like, your hands are still too close. I didn't like it. Honestly, traveling with just a, you know, Windows keyboard works for me, too. I have More one so that's... More so than a MacBook keyboard? Yeah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just wider. Um, and then it also, you can change the tilt. So, helpful. I also have a confession. I never learned, like, home row typing. <laughs> I, uh, I just evolved from Hunt and Peck over the past... I don't know, however many years, 25 years. Um, and so I just have my own way of typing, which is probably not very efficient and also makes me really bad at Vim, <laughs> like using a H, HJKL. Uh, so I'm going to try, I'm kind of like also banking on this to like reset my, my brain on that. So I think using this new keyboard, I'm going to try and like, because there, there's, no, there's no letters in the keyboard. So I need to like keep my hands still and memorize where my, my fingers go. Can you define uh, Hutton Peck? So you you hold your finger out in front of you like you're pointing at something, and then you you push the key that you're looking at. You're hunting with your eyes, and you're pecking mm. with your finger. Uh, obviously, I'm a lot faster than that, but still, I'm probably not as fast as I should be for like learning how to keyboard properly. This is probably why I still use the arrow keys in them. 
No, good, a new keyboard is a good chance to reset all your muscle memory. I've been doing the same thing. As I said before, I think I, I do stay on the home row, but I don't use all of the right fingers for the right keys normally. Like I use my right index finger for B. I only use uh, the left shift normally. So I've been working on doing everything perfectly and the new keyboards helped with that. Maybe I should get Mavis Beacon typing. What are those programs from the 90s? Mavis Beacon and the other one? Typing of the Dead. What? Typing of the Dead. That's a thing? Yeah. It's like that um, House of the Dead game, except instead of shooting zombies, you just type the word that's over their head, and then they die. Oh, wow. That's amazing. There's uh, for PC and Dreamcast, and the hero uh, has like a little tower computer strapped to himself and the keyboard tray in front of him. That's really cool. What have you been working on, Justin? Um... Well, I was working on uh, Postgres full text search. Uh, so when you go to atlas.hashicorp.com and search for a vagrant box, uh, we use Elasticsearch for that, and it was slow for a number of reasons. And our our, our data set wasn't that really complex, and or nor large. Uh, so we switched to Postgres full text search, and it's pretty fast, and it's one less infrastructure dependency, uh, one less machine you need to run in your in your infrastructure. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I think Len's working on a Postgres full text search for a client too, right? Uh, there's just it's smaller scale stuff, just doing full text search on like first name, last name, email. Uh, although we did use it to uh, actually go across models too, which is pretty nice. Has that been fast enough for you? Yeah. Um, as long as we did prefix and not trigram. So you can set up Postgres full text search so that it could search like the middle of a word. Uh, so if you were searching for uh, like comp, Turing incomplete would come up. Ooh, that's a good example. I don't think you would actually search for Turing incomplete that way. And you probably wouldn't even want to see that result if you were searching for comp. So prefix is faster. So um, you'd have to but search for tur. <laughs> but prefix is uh, per column, not per word, right? Like if you search for, if pretend Turing incomplete didn't have a dash in it, so we'll ignore that. Right. right? Uh, if you search for incomplete would it or INC, would it find it? Yeah, it's per word. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then it also supports a uh, trigram search, which is an extension. I didn't know what a trigram was, and it's actually pretty simple. It's you take a word and uh, like Turing, and then you split it into groups of three letters, like T U R and U R I, and then whenever you type a search term, it does the same thing and just tries to match the the trigrams with each other, and whatever matches the most wins. So the cool thing about that is if you have a word like Google. Uh, and you type G-O-G-L-E, it will still match partially because cause groups of three letters still match. I think all but two match in that case. Yeah, because G-O-O and O-O-G would, would not match. Um, yeah, it's like a pretty cool way to like do fuzzy finding. It also has another search mode or uh, extension that I did not try, but it's called D-Metaphone. So it has like dictionaries, like one for English. So if you... Uh, if you search for, like, Jeff is the canonical example, uh, J-E-F-F, it will also search for G-E-O-F-F. Like, it knows what words sound alike, and we'll try to match them up. It's really cool. Do you, can you talk about why Elasticsearch was being slow? Uh, it's not really Elasticsearch okay. at all. <laughs> so I don't want to get into it. Bottom line, it was just kind of overkill for our use case. Awesome. What have you been working on, Jervon? I have been working on an API uh, that produces data and also collects data for a mobile app or many mobile apps, mobile nice. clients. Is that in Rails? It is in Rails. Um, yeah. Using, Are you using uh, like Rails API? No. Um, we thought about that when we first started, but 
the client also wants a front end part to it. So there's a namespace API or ah, okay. API namespace. Is the front end going to be static or like JavaScript? Static. It's mostly for debugging stuff. Like they just want a quick way to say kind of line data up in case ah, they need to do something. Um, QA, QA purposes. Um, so. And on the side, I'm looking at React and Ohm. Which is that been, your talk? Yeah, which has been pretty interesting. Um, Do you use Ohm with React? So you use Ohm, Ohm and then Ohm is, is just, React. Yeah, Ohm is just Ohm oh. is the way to React in ClojureScript. Way to React. Yeah, the way you use React is through Ohm. So they're oh, so they're not the same. They're not used together. Or they are. You use Ohm, and in that. Um, and by using Ohm, you're also like Ohm is a, a library that utilizes React. It's a layer on top of React, so it gives okay. you ClojureScript stuff with React. Does that make sense? It does. I'm so uh, I'm so removed from the front end stuff. I, I I need to build a proper JavaScript app sometime soon before I forget everything. <laughs> Maybe I'll read a book called "Choosing a JavaScript Framework" by Pam Sally. That name sounds familiar. Yo. <laughs> Have any of you used React? This is my first time looking at it. I, I tried looking at it earlier and I was like, I don't need this right now. I have, although I'm not hypey about it. I still, I want to do a proof of concept about why you don't need React. And why well, perhaps you, you shouldn't. Instead? Using web components and the principles of reactive programming. Oh, I've heard that. Maybe from you, actually. You've heard that from me. <laughs> <laughs> because I need to build a proof of concept. Um, but for not having built the proof of concept, I'm pretty convinced that it's a thing. So Web Components and Polymer are separate, right? No. No. Well, okay. Polymer yes. is the wrapper around Web Components? So what is Polymer? Pol Polymer is a project by Google. It is... It, it's kind of the way most people are encountering web components now. But in general, Polymer ha contains the polyfills that let you do web components and then also hand you some Google-branded stuff, like, you know, paper by Google, like their UI stuff. Honestly, I don't know why people mm -hmm. don't, I don't know. I don't really like it. I don't know why people aren't just like, it's just Bootstrap, but different. Because um, it is, but... Anyhow, it is how most people are encountering web components, but web components are an open standard. And so it's not just this Polymer thing, although Polymer, and when most people talk about, some people will even say Polymer components instead of web components because they, you know, they're familiar with going to the Polymer project and they aren't just using the, I guess, you know, it's probably kind of analogous to using Socket.io versus using WebSockets. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. so like socket, like web sockets are. I mean, although you know, uh, there's actually a blog post that in in this topic of like socket IO does give you a lot for web sockets and makes things, the stuff a lot easier. Um, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure how much ease a polymer adds to web components or if web components are pretty much solid if you just use the API polyfill. I mean, so that that'd be interesting in the in the concept of seeing, you know, you know, like when like when you first started doing demos of JavaScript without jQuery, and you're like, yeah, it's so easy. You just use document dot selector all instead of dollar sign an argument. Um, which actually, to 
other people, I think, looks like, oh, well, I saved, like, 50 characters <laughs> by not having to write doc- document.queryselector all. But, yeah. So, yeah, I'm interested in, in trying out the, the polyfill. And there's also Mozilla's Brick, uh, which I think is still, still around. Um, but that's basically the analogous polymer except built by Mozilla. Hmm. So sugar on top of web components and also some some sample components and such. So I think it's it's one of those things too is I don't like the very like googly bend of web components because I think it's kind of I don't know, I, it's just it's an open standard and it should be an open standard. And also I've heard an interesting point that what some people who are really kind of haters about React say that basically like last few years. Facebook has entered the open source space with all these, you know, new libraries that are separate from other projects. Um, and other people, cynical people have said that it's because of the talent wars. So to draw talent away from other competitors who do similar things. So away from Netflix, away from Google, away from Mozilla, where you work on open projects. And that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is very cynical. I recognize it as that, but... Um, you know, it's interesting because it's like, well, why? Because that's the whole thing is why do we need React if we could just use web components? And the answer is you don't really need React. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my argument. So what is the definition of a web component? A web component is when you tie markup behavior and style together into one component. So it's it's actually an old idea that came out in the 90s, but people were like, what are you talking about? That's a terrible idea. We're trying to separate those because CSS didn't really exist yet in its current form for sure. Um, so I, there were IE behaviors. I wrote a blog post about this, about the history of web components. Um, and so IE behaviors were this idea of tying behavior and and UI together um, into a modular component that's portable and reusable elsewhere. Um, so now it's gaining traction again because I think maybe like we've gone, I don't know, I guess it's, I mean, we see all these trends always happen in, in, in development where we go one way and then we go another. I mean, my current favorite quote about that is um, Ramsey Nasser saying, lisp, the future is the past. Um, so like there's trends and so I feel so the trend now is going back to those modular components that everyone thought were a terrible idea and we've spent so much time trying to get, you know, last ten years getting people to rip their JavaScript out of their markup uh and you know and their style. And now we're like kind of moving it all modularly into a different state. But that kind of ties them all together modularly. But yeah, anyway, the example that I always use is that a select element is a great example of a web component because it is, it has a, if you do the markup for a select element, you have a select tag and then you have options tags. And those then like fall into this layout where they collapse into that drop down. There's the browser understands to wrap, to put it in a UI of like, this is what a select element should look like, like vaguely like this differs by browser. Um, and then it has an API so that, you know, you can access it through the DOM and access a selected value. So it has a, it has markup, it has a expected UI and expected behavior all in one little thing. Hmm. 
And so the idea of web components is being able to build your own such things where you wrap the UI and behavior together and it's portable. Like you can put a select element anywhere on your site and you, you know that it will act like a select element and it will have that same API. So just yesterday, I was writing a uh, little piece of jQuery where I was like, I want this button here to toggle displaying and hiding this other element over here, right? It, w- it was for like a, a table where I wanted to expand more details inside of it, it on a row if you click a button. So then I just wrote like a uh, <clears throat> data toggle element uh, on the button and then pointed that to the ID of the element I wanted to toggle and then wrote like a couple lines of jQuery to like do that. But I can write that in Polymer if I had a, or web component, sorry, if the component was like button that toggles or something. Like, would, would that be a good fit or the overkill? No, I, I think, I mean, I think that there's a Polymer example of just that. Like, okay. I think that's also like Polymer website's also good because it does have lots of examples on like what these things are and what, what could be a web component. Because it's, it's also like people are still kind of triggering out of like they kind of want to make everything a web component. <laughs> So it's like, and then the title bar will be a web component. It's like, but really, does it need to be? Does it need <laughs> to be really? Like, does it the title bar have behavior, and is it going to be reused multiple times? Like, eh, eh. Oh, and also that the elements are, are you know, are because they're packageable, they're shareable. So then, essentially, you you know, it becomes a library. So, ooh, yeah. So you can bring in a button as a library. Or a table with behaviors. Like a sortable table or the headers of sortable is one example that I've seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, doing that thing that everyone has done before and no one needs to do again, (laughs) you can use a library for it. (laughs) So the thing uh, I didn't like about Justin's example, you know, the small scale, but I think this is like the problem I see a lot in JavaScript apps or that one component knows about some other component and where there's some part of the page. So you said you gave like the button the idea of the thing to show and hide. I mean, I mean, technically this could just be one thing that has yeah, it half sounds, of it that's hidden. Yeah, it sounds like the way you put it made it sound like it was a side effect, but then when you finished, it sounded like it was a behavior that would exist within the component. Yeah, I guess so. Because the the component could could have the button and the other part like they're right next to each other. Oh, okay. If that matters, like. Well, then, so are you against? Competence talking to each other, or yeah, I no, I, I'm against them knowing about each other. Okay. I, I like to use uh, like a message bus, like Radio JS, so that you know if this button was somewhere else on the page, it could just fire off an event saying that you know whatever whatever semantic thing should happen, like that 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 thing should show itself, and then that thing could just listen to the message bus, and when it gets that event, it, it would know to show itself. I mean, I've worked on a project where like we had something similar. I think it was. Uh... What's the backbone thing on top of it? Uh, it's actually a backbone radio now. It used to be a backbone wrecker. Oh, but like there was just like magic strings everywhere, and I like you had no idea like what would happen if if you when it, when a string was called. Like you could search for the string, but like then other parts would be like doing it dynamically. Um, I, I without knowing a lot about any of this, I feel like the ultimate answer is you have a a function or like a state of something is computed by other values uh, like lazily. And then whenever those values are updated, that state is updated. Like like if you have a, a, a save button, maybe the save button is uh, enabled if the form is valid. 
And instead of the form, like every time you type a key, the form like does a validation. The validation then says like update save button. Maybe the save button should just say form is valid. I- I'm enabled if the form is valid. And then that will automatically know like whenever the form's updated and the validation changes to update itself, which seems to be, if I'm not mistaken, how Ember works. I guess you'd really be validating the model, not the form. But I would, I would much prefer to like have, uh, have the thing changing, rely on some computed state rather than something, uh, the input then telling other things to happen. Does that make sense? Well, it's not telling anything to happen. It's just saying that this thing did happen and anything that cares can listen to it. Yeah. But that's kind of the same, you know, like top down approach. Like you're saying you're just changing the state and then everything can just listen to this object. And when the state changes, you know, re-render itself accordingly. Yeah, I guess you could accomplish both if you were disciplined about like, like the one thing would announce that it changed. The other thing would subscribe to those changes. And then in in that subscription, in that callback, it would have to then compute what it's supposed to do with that. Not always just uh, take the message as the, the state. Like it's more like a trigger to update rather than passing state in the in the message. Can you give an example of what you uh, don't like? Like, uh, no, I'm not going to. <laughs> All right. uh, like, like if you have like a message bus, right? So the, in my head, because I, I haven't done a lot of this, so um, in my head, like if you have if you have something that needs to change based on other things in the application, and you're relying on messages from those other things to tell you to change. Maybe it's a good practice to use those messages as a trigger to change, but not passing the state that it should change into in that in that trigger. Mm. So I think the thing that like Len's mentioning, like you can also pass arguments into that into those messages into those events. Okay. To tell the thing what to do, to be like, you should be disabled now. Yeah, like instead of saying that, maybe it should just say, "Hey, this thing changed." Do whatever logic you're going, you're going to do for either disabling or enabling yourself. Yeah. So, like one example, say you have a list of items, and then you have a form to add a new item. After the you save it, and the item callback, you know, Ajax success happens. Instead of you know micromanaging what happens, I just throw a message at the message queue saying broadcast, you know, contact or item created, and then actually pass the item. So then kind of, you know, the, the messaging component can take it and, you know, show a flash message saying, oh, you know, item created successfully. The item list can look at that new component and, uh, you know, add it to its, its collection. Uh, and then the form itself can, can look at that message and know to uh, close itself or reset itself or whatever. And that's because they're all listening to the message queue for, for new items that are added. I think I should try web components. Sounds cool. Pam says it's the future. I believe her. I mean, it's the future until we all change our minds and do something else. <laughs> so, like, next year? Basically. Has there been a thing from Google that stuck around and was successful? <laughs> so, when Reader. we started talking about Polymer, I was wondering, like... Is there like, an open source library or anything? An open source library. Is there is Gmail for anything. Like Gmail's still around. I mean, Google does a lot of infrastructure things, papers, uh, distributed computing that then get turned into projects elsewhere. They don't mm-hmm. usually release them themselves, though. Uh, CoreOS is still growing, so I guess it hasn't really elapsed the time in which it would no longer be relevant. But Co- CoreOS, um, they were, they're invested, right? Google invested in them. They're separate. 
Well, it's like Google Cloud Platform. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm having a hard time thinking of anything that Google has open sourced themselves. Protocol buffers. Those are pretty popular. I'm looking through their uh, their GitHub. Google web fonts. Those are hot. Chrome. Chrome. Chrome is open source, right? Yeah, but I don't, I don't like use it for mm, projects. I guess like Chromium is open source, mm. right? Yeah, I guess that's you're right. the. Uh, and then Chrome is built on Chromium. But you can't right? view the sauce off Chrome. No, okay. it's the open source project behind Chrome because Chrome has has secret sugar, but so it's it's still proprietary. So I, you know, I found out why some of my computer crashed during the call, and Google Chrome crashed it. <laughs> funnily how, enough, how did you find that out? Did uh, it say it wouldn't turn back on, or the well, the you can like open the console, like literally the app console, not terminal. Um, and it has all your your system logs, and there's a you know right before when my computer shut down, there's a lot of like Google Chrome can <laughs> triggered uh, shitty memory stuff. Google Chrome shit can, <laughs> and then <laughs> application close, <laughs> and then it uh you know restarts. <laughs> kernel panic. <laughs> yeah. Well, is that kernel panic if it's a memory issue? Same thing. I don't know. It felt different than a usual kernel panic. It did different than it usually does the gray but, screen of death oh no it was the gray screen of death maybe i'm just i maybe i'm just blessed to have you know hashtag blessed to not have had you know kernel panic in a little while but yeah it was definitely google chrome <laughs> crash my shit so something i had open in chrome probably crashed it it's probably some like ad on a website i saw some messages related to audio but yeah it's interesting are you guys ready for picks? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, my pick is agar.io, uh, A-G-A-R.io. It is a browser game, which probably has WebSockets or something in it. Uh, but you you pilot a blob, a cell around uh, with your mouse, and you eat little pieces of matter, mass, I guess. And uh, you absorb uh, blobs smaller than yourself until you, you're you're very large. There's no end of the game. It's just massively multiplayer. Um be warned, there are some offensive usernames, but you can turn them off in the settings. My strategy is usually to attack whoever's the most offensive username. Um, but it, it has this really cool thing where, like, the bigger you get, the smaller you move. Uh, but you have an attack, which is to split yourself in half and then, like, lunge forward. So if you're more than half as big as somebody, you can, like, lunge on them and absorb them. Uh, and then there's, like, a leaderboard. Uh, and the bigger ones constantly lose mass at a higher rate. And I think the entire board is in, like, equilibrium where when the uh, when the larger blobs lose mass, there's, like, mass sprinkled throughout the, the board that you can then go eat. Uh, it's a really fun game. Give it a try. Agar.io. Uh, so I tried it, and it was fun, but it made me miss this iOS game called Osmos, uh, which is very similar, moving a blob and eating things bigger than you. Uh, so my first pick will be Osmos. Uh, it's for Android, iOS, uh, and PC, Mac. Uh, and then my second pick will be a charity called Codestarter.org. So it crowdfunds sending laptops to children who want to learn how to code. And the nice thing about it is that you actually like see the story of the next kid to get a laptop if the funding goal is met. And then after they receive it, you actually get an email uh, with a picture with this child receiving your laptop. Uh, so it was a really feel-good charity. Pam, do you have a pick? I do. Uh, let me find it. I had it up before my computer crashed. 
Um, so my pick is Git Torrent, which uh, is made by a uh, a recursor, uh, and so it's a decentralized GitHub that they made during Recurse Center. And it's really interesting. Um, I'm still trying to understand it. I need to use it. Um, but the idea is basically, like we, we use Git, which is a decentralized version control system. And, but then we generally tend to rely on GitHub a lot. Um, and we, and we, we do a lot of things that aren't actually in a decentralized way. Um, but because of the way Git is, it is able, you are able to do things like that. Uh, and so it's, it's like being able to do Git except like with BitTorrent. So it's GitTorrent and that is my pick. So my program pick is a book, um, about async JavaScript, uh, by the Prague Prog, uh, Pragmatic Programmers. It's pretty good. It talks about the JavaScript event system and enlightens you on topics related to that. And my music pick is probably Florence and the Machine. I think they have a new album out. Um, I've been listening to some tracks from it. Those are my picks. Cool. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 52. Follow us on Twitter at turingcool, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.